Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. This week, for the Project Censored Show, we honor Black History Month with an encore presentation of an interview Peter Phillips and I did with author and professor Carol Anderson from Emory University. Her book, White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide, recounts the history of white resistance and obstruction to African-American equality from the Reconstruction era to modern times. Today on the Project Censored Show, Carol Anderson and White Rage. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm Mickey Huff with Peter Phillips. On today's program, we discuss a new book. It's titled White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide. We're joined for the hour by Dr. Carol Anderson, a professor and chair of the African-American Studies Department at Emory University. And here is Peter to introduce Dr. Anderson to you. Peter? Dr. Carol Anderson is the Samuel Chandler Dobbs Professor and chair of the African-American Studies Department at Emory University. She's the author of many books and articles, including Bourgeois Radicals, the NAACP and the Struggle for Colonial Liberation, 1941 to 1960, The Eyes of the Prize, the United Nations and the African-American Struggle for Human Rights. You've written a number of historical things. Carol, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. I've really enjoyed reading through this book, White Rage, and it's really about how whites harbor, often perhaps even unconsciously, fears of black progress, and that that manifests itself in a variety of ways. Could you talk about that, your overall thesis? My overall thesis is that when African Americans advance, and and that advancement is toward getting access to their inherent citizenship rights and to their inherent human rights, when they make those advancements, such as moving from property to human being after the Civil War. You see a range of policy initiatives just emanating out of government bureaucracies that are designed to undercut that advancement. We see it after the Civil War. We see it during the Great Migration, the Brown decision, the Civil Rights Movement, which we often herald as this wonderful achievement when the United States became the United States, where it really lived up to its billing, what it said it was, what it said it was designed to do. But then how do you explain where we are now? And so I look at those moments of advancement and then go through systematically through the policies that rose up, in fact, to undercut that achievement. Carol Anderson, you're talking about cycles in the book, historical cycles, and you're mentioning that there is this this sense of two steps forward, one step back, or one step forward, two steps back in some ways. And you highlight then that this is a consistent theme historically. What led you to the title, White Rage? What are you capturing, do you think, historically with the title of your work? I'll talk about what got me there, and then moved backwards, because this is what historians do. What got me there, I was watching the news cycle when Ferguson was on fire. 
after the killing of Michael Brown, and more importantly, after his body was just left there for hours on the ground in August as a signal to the community. And I'm watching the fires just erupt. And the pundits and the newscasters were all describing this black rage. Black people burning up where they live. Why are black people burning up where they live? And they had these very narrowed arguments for why black people were burning up where they live. And as they're talking about this, I found myself shaking my head, no. No, they've just missed it. What we're really looking at is not black rage, but white rage. And then that's those moments of epiphany that one has, right? And I had lived in Missouri for about 13 years. I I used to teach at the University of Missouri. And I saw what public policy did in that state. And I began to think through how in these moments of what looks like advancement, in fact, we have policies that undercut it and policies that actually erode the vibrancy of American democracy. They erode the vibrancy of what the United States could be, its potential. And that's how I came to white rage. And, and, and it's also to make it clear that it's not what we often think of as rage in terms of like the Klan burning a cross or throwing the N-word around or anything like that. This is the kind of rage that moves very coolly, very methodically, very systematically, and it often cloaks itself in this beautiful patriotic language of, say, protecting the integrity of the ballot box, of ensuring the sanctity of neighborhood schools. Carol Anderson, I just wanted to interject momentarily because you yourself in your book, White Rage, you put it so well when you talked about buzzwords, dog whistles, and sophistry. That was one of my favorite lines there. But that's what you're describing here. Yes, yes. And, you know, you think about it. How many times have we heard those kind of dog whistles, the dog whistles of, you know, we have to have law and order? Who could be against law and order, right? So it sounds so, oh. Who could possibly oppose it, right? Yeah, who could possibly oppose it? Except when you pull back the veneer, and that's really what I've worked on doing in this, is pulling back the veneer so we can see historically how this thing works over time. And what you have, because it's also going after several of the myths, so the myths that... Well, you know, either Lincoln freed the slaves, so I don't know why black people can't make it, or that it was all over, all of the discrimination was over by the time of the Civil Rights Act of 64 and the Voting Rights Act of 65. I don't know why black people can't make it. Well, what you see here are African Americans, despite all of the odds, pushing forward with incredible resilience and being punished for that resilience. So think about it. You have children who are fighting to get an education. This is what we say we want and value in this society, right? We want kids who love to learn. You have children fighting to get an education, and you then have governors and legislatures shutting down their public schools. Wow. That's white rage. Carol, You 
trace historically this white rage and how it manifests itself over 200 years and probably even before that. But, I mean, you start after the Civil War. You talk about the black codes that were implemented in many states around the country even after Emancipation Proclamation. You talk about the history of Lincoln even trying to get blacks to move to Panama and other places in the world to separate out. So those histories come right up to the present. They come right up to the current candidacy saying, take back America, which certainly is coded for white people take back America. Is that how you see it? It is so ahistorical. You know, there's a candidate for Congress in Tennessee just put up a billboard, make America white again, right? And I want to say again. Yeah, indeed. Sorry, but there were some folks here before you, right? But it's part of a powerful narrative that is driving the current impulse to quote-unquote, make America great again, that's driving the take-back-our-country movement. This kind of sense of an incredible loss against the maddening hordes or something. And I really believe that what is so important is that we get our history right, that we really understand what happened and why. Now, there are some folks that you can't convince. That's just the nature of this beast. But there are those who just don't know, and that we've got to make it clear how this came to be. Why don't schools function? Why do our cities look the way they look? Why are we looking at state budgets that are cracking under the weight of mass incarceration, when in fact we know that a better investment would be actually in education, would be in providing really decent health care. So something is going on. And so this book looks at those kinds of priorities as a society that we are setting, that we have a choice to make. And when we make the right ones, things are good. We allow white rage to work. It goes off the rails. Carol, the term white rage, certainly for people who harbor overt racism, they're, they're just going to say, that just doesn't make sense. Right. But what I like to call liberal ostriches, who, who really say, oh, I'm not racist, and don't have any understanding of the depth and the history that they're immersed in, that they grew up in, and, and how that manifests itself even today. Get some of the history here. The black codes... Why were those needed after the Civil War? So the black codes were needed because now you have African Americans who had been seen legally as property now being human beings and human beings who were demanding their citizenship rights. And so here you have an incredible advancement. And those citizenship rights include the right to vote. And the black codes were designed to basically reinscribe slavery by another name. So what they did was, and they, states like Louisiana, Mississippi, Georgia, Alabama, what they did was they passed legislation that said, if you were black, and because understand that the black codes were for black people only, if you were black, you had to prove that you had a job. If you did not have proof of employment, you either had to sign a labor contract that would last a year 
and you couldn't leave that employer regardless of wages, regardless of how poorly you were treated, regardless if the plantation owner was whipping you, or you would be a vagrant and arrested by the criminal justice system, right, and put through that criminal justice system where your labor would then be auctioned off to a plantation owner, to a lumber mill owner, to a mine owner. And you would then have to work off what they had paid to get you out of jail. Whatever it did, whatever your status was, it meant that your labor was owned by somebody else and you had no right to take that labor anywhere. I mean, you want to talk about undermining the capitalist system? This is indentured servitude. Yes, it, it is. This was law after law after law. You're just watching these black codes erupt across the old South, the post-Civil War South, as a way to dragoon black labor into rebuilding the South, but not having to pay for it. And Carol Anderson, add to that, of course, the literacy tests and the so-called grandfather clause. Yes. Uh, the assaults were numerous and coming from multiple angles, generated from really a generation of racist, white, former slave owners that were legislators. Yes, and, and, and you really see the rise of these because in, in, there's that, that fluid moment where black people are fighting back. They're building their own schools. You've got federal troops there after Andrew Johnson has to go away. Well, that early Reconstruction period, there's a lot of positive changes. There were a lot of positive changes during the radical Republican Reconstruction, during the presidential Reconstruction days with Andrew Johnson. Mm, no. <laughs> not so good. <laughs> no, and Grant, and, right, and then up to the Hayes Compromise, not much of a compromise for African Americans, that's for sure. We're speaking with historian Carol Anderson. Her book is White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide. We'll continue the conversation with Carol Anderson after this musical break. Please stay with us. Said, hey, little boy, you can't go where the others go. You don't look like they do. Said, hey, old man, how can you stand to think that way? Did you really think about it before you made the rules? He said, that's just the way it is. Things have never changed That's just the way it is How oh, but don't you believe that yeah. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm Mickey Huff with Peter Phillips. On today's program, we're speaking with Professor Carol Anderson. Her latest book is White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide. Before the break, Carol Anderson, we were starting to get into the black codes and some of the many challenges, institutional challenges. Let's call them what they were, institutionally racist statutes that birth what, what later becomes known as Jim Crow. And we know that those were segregation laws that eventually lead to the Plessy versus Ferguson case in 1896. Can you walk us up through this period? Because there's this brief window after the Civil War where there's hope. 
There are some things that are changing. But then, as you illustrated before the break, this shuts down through Andrew Johnson and then through the Hayes presidency, certainly the train wreck of a Grant presidency. Take us here through what becomes one of the most significant impediments for African-American equality via Jim Crow. So there you have, because the Supreme Court during that era has issued a series of rulings that undercut Congress's intent on ending slavery, the 13th Amendment, abolishing slavery, the 14th Amendment, saying you are a citizen if you are born in the United States, and which also outlines due process, and the 15th Amendment, the right to vote. For African-American men. Yes. And so the U.S. Supreme Court systematically went through each one of those and said, no, that's not what that means. So you get that the 14th Amendment is really not about citizenship rights, but it is about the rights of corporations as people. That's where the due process lies. And that what it also means is that any kind of civil right that you think you have has to be handled by the state. It is the state that has the authority over civil rights. Now, what that means is you're putting civil rights in the hands of Mississippi, in the hands of Alabama. You're putting the civil rights in the hands of folks who, in their constitutional conventions, have said, this is a government made for the white race, to the benefit of the white race, and those of African descent have no rights. That's what the Supreme Court did. So by the time we get to the 1890s, we're looking at a series of Supreme Court decisions that have not just gutted, but have given sanction to embedded racial inequality in the United States. I'll just take the one decision, the Williams decision coming out of Mississippi that I talk about in the book. In that Williams decision, the Mississippi Supreme Court said, okay, so it's really clear that the state legislature, recognizing that it can't just discriminate against the Negro. It just can't say, no, Negroes can't vote. But what it's going to do is identify the characteristics and then put those as the barriers to the right to vote. The U.S. Supreme Court looks at this and says, you know, the Mississippi Supreme Court said this, and the Mississippi Supreme Court is right. But we're going to allow the poll tax, because what those barriers were were literacy, because when you deny education, when you shut down schools, what you are doing is you are embedding illiteracy into a population. And what it also did was to deal with issues of poverty. So by linking literacy and poverty boom, you have cut off the right to vote so intensely that by 1942 in the midterm election, only 3% of eligible voters in the poll tax states actually voted. That's the power of the poll tax. And of course, there was an end around of the poll tax, certainly the literacy test more significantly. Can you talk to people about that, the grandfather clause, as the end around for poor or illiterate, uneducated whites. Talk about the racial divide, right? This is sort of the schism. This is the plutocratic establishment insertion of this pitting of races against one another, the divide and conquer kind of technique. What the grandfather clause did was it said that 
if your grandfather voted in the 1860 election, then you too were eligible to vote. Now, think about that. That is that beautiful cloaked language. So you go, oh, okay. Who could not vote in 1860? There were four million enslaved black people in the United States in 1860 that could not vote. They were not seen and recognized as citizens of the United States. So what you have done with that language by saying, oh, by 1860, is to say, we don't want black people to vote. But you don't have to say that. You can just use that beautiful dog whistle language. And that, therefore, opens the door to poor white. And let's be clear here, too. The way that this system works is that whites are collateral damage in white rage. And so you had a lot of poor whites who couldn't vote because they weren't the right kind of whites. And you had the registrar going, no, you can't vote. No, you can't vote. But there were some poor whites who could. It is the way that the system works. And I'm getting ready to hop forward to Lee Atwater's quote to make that point going backwards. Lee Atwater was the political strategist for Ronald Reagan. And after the civil rights movement, they knew that they couldn't use the same kind of overtly racist language that had been used previously, say, by Theodore Bilbo out of Mississippi. And so Atwater says, you know, in 1954, you could say the N-word, 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 N-word. But by 1968, you can't. It hurts you. It backfires. So you use other words like forced busing, states' rights. And everything that you're talking about, there are these economic things, like cutting taxes. But the point is that blacks get hurt worse than whites. Now, that's the key phrase there, that blacks get hurt worse than whites. So you have a policy mantra, a framework being set up that targets blacks, but understands that whites are going to get hurt and they're just acceptable collateral damage. And you would bring that right up to the present with voter ID laws Absolutely. being placed in states all over the country, that blacks are hurt more than whites. Yes, but you know, so you think about, let's take Pennsylvania, right? Pennsylvania was one of those that immediately adopted voter suppression laws. Now, as they're adopting them, they made all kinds of promises. Yeah, we'll have some mobile ID bases for the rural areas because, you know, you have Philadelphia on one side of the state and you got Pittsburgh on the other, and then you have a large rural area in the middle of the state. Well, the state didn't come up with enough mobile units so that people could get a government-issued photo ID. And people were going to have to drive for hours in order to try to get to a spot to get to a government-issued photo ID. But these places weren't always open. So the state sets up, yes, you have to have this, but then doesn't provide what is necessary. In the end, what the judge recognized was that, you know, you have basically set up a form of a poll tax here where you're requiring something that you're not providing. So you have all... The middle of Pennsylvania is made up of, of a lot of whites, elderly whites, who can't be able to vote. 
that's what this voter suppression does. Carol, let's look back historically at the post-World War I period where over 1.5 million blacks traveled to the north for the jobs that were opening up in in factories and plants up there. And in many cases, they were recruited. How did the Southern whites deal with that? What was the resistance? Tell us that story. You know, when I was researching this, I found myself just going, oh, my gosh. The depth of the resistance to black people claiming their own destiny was intense. So one of the first things they did was because it was very difficult for Southern white leaders to believe that black people weren't happy with Jim Crow. Booker T. Washington obviously is a glaring example of the accommodationist school in that regard, and that was a a mainstay in black intellectual thought at that period up through the early 20th century. Right, right. You know, that, that whole Atlanta Compromise speech, and that just played into it. So when you had black people just moving, leaving because of the intrinsic, endemic poverty brought on by sharecropping, by the horrific lynchings that were happening, where there was no justice to be found anywhere. So you've got economic vulnerability, political vulnerability. Black people are leaving because what the war has done is it has created a need for labor in the northern industries. So there's a push and a pull as far as the Great Migration. Absolutely. This is like vintage immigration, vintage migration studies 101, right? Push-pull factors. And with that, the South at first said, no, we've got to have some outside agitators who are stirring up our black people, trying to lure them away. And so they start passing laws about labor agents, those who are recruiting African Americans to leave where they are to look for another job. And again, I say, in a capitalist economy, part of what we understand is you've got the right to look for another job, a job that's going to pay you well, not in the South. So they charged labor agents like a $1,000 license fee. In one city, they charged a $25,000 license fee. And again, this was like 1920. And if you didn't pay that fee, you could be jailed. And so it was a way to try to stop people from being able to get other jobs. Slavery by another name. Thank you. When that didn't work, when that didn't work because black people just kept on leaving, one of the things they went after then was the First Amendment. That First Amendment deals with freedom of the press. Well, the Chicago Defender had been one of the major papers helping to spur the Great Migration. It was a paper that was absolutely fearless. It talked about, you need to leave the South. This is not a place for decent human beings to be. Well, they stood up to Booker T. Washington fabulously. Oh, didn't they? They stood up. My mother would tell the story of my grandfather, who would get his Chicago Defender fold it under his arm, get a little swag on as he's walking away and saying, oh, I got my fender. It was a paper that showed that you were a person who respected yourself. 
And that paper not only encouraged African Americans to leave the South, but also talked about, look, we've got jobs, we've got housing, you know, this is how you can get out. It was an incredible paper. District after district in the South began to ban the Chicago Defender. Well, and you had the Pittsburgh Courier. I mean, there were numerous papers, yeah. right, in these cities, yeah. and that's exactly right. There was an assault on the First Amendment. A complete assault on the First Amendment, where you have a judge who is issuing an injunction against the sale and the distribution of the Chicago Defender. And let's be clear, there's not a libel law to be found here. Everything that the Chicago Defender was printing was accurate in terms of the lynchings, in terms of the laws, in terms of the sharecropping. So the assault is not that this is a scandalous paper, but in fact that it is a paper that is revealing the truth, so it must be silent. In true muckraking fashion, (laughs) they're doing what the First Amendment and the free press is tasked to do as purportedly protected under our Constitution, and they certainly bravely did so. We're speaking with historian Carol Anderson. Her latest book, White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide. After this musical break, we'll return and continue our conversation with Carol Anderson. Please stay with us. Then I go to my brother And I say, brother, help me please But he winds up Knocking me Back down on Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm Mickey Huff with Peter Phillips. On today's program, we're talking about white rage, the unspoken truth of our racial divide. We are honored to be joined by historian Carol Anderson, who has written a fantastic history from the Civil War to the present about racial divide and the struggle particularly African-Americans face against what she calls white rage. And earlier in the program, Carol Anderson described that term coming up after what had happened in Ferguson, Missouri, and also talks about what happened after the shooting of Amadou Diallo will come up to the present by the end of the program. But before the break, we were in the 20s talking about the Great Migration And, of course, there's a shift in African-American leadership at this time. We were talking about the importance of the press, the Chicago Defender, really kind of taking to task, as did the NAACP, a new organization at the time with W.B. Du Bois, and a new sort of cadre of leaders coming out of this period saying that the African-Americans 
they shouldn't be accommodating the white power structure and that they should fight for the civil liberties that were theirs according to the Constitution. And so when you get through the 20s, it's, it's a fairly tumultuous time. You've got the Booker T. Washington, the W.E.B. Du Bois divide. Then you have Marcus Garvey, Jamaican-born, coming in to the U.S., and the FBI is all over him trying to undermine the efforts for early forms of what later are called black power and so forth. But could you talk to us a little bit about that decade, the Harlem Renaissance impact or effect, and maybe just take us through even parts of the Depression and World War II in terms of that concept of your book, The White Rage, and sort of the backlash to any form of African-American progress? Sure. One of the things I'll talk about is the Ossian Sweet case that I talked about in White Rage. And then I'll move briefly into New Deal, the New Deal, and then have us come straight up and through the Brown decision. So with Ossian Sweet, this is also part of the Great Migration. He was originally from Florida. Eventually, he moves his way up into Detroit. He was a doctor, a physician. This is in the 1920s. And this is a man who should be the embodiment of the American dream, working his way up from abject poverty, going to school, going through med school, becoming a physician with a thriving practice. But the way that redlining and restrictive covenants worked, African Americans were moving into the North you see an array of policies being designed to keep them trapped in these very isolated enclaves. And so in Detroit, you had in an area called Black Bottom, which is where black people were supposed to live in Detroit. The area didn't expand, but because of the Great Migration, the population did by 10 times. So imagine 10 times the number of people living within the same small, confined area. It was also an area that somewhere between a quarter to half of the homes did not have indoor plumbing. Again, 1920s Detroit in an area without indoor plumbing. Ossian Sweet says, man, I'm not living here. He tries to move to a white neighborhood. He and his wife move in. White neighbors are just like, no, we don't want black people here. And so they form a neighborhood association. They surround his house. They're throwing rocks. The police are there. The police aren't stopping the neighbors from getting ready to storm his house and God knows do whatever. And all of a sudden, shots ring out from the house as the neighbors are surging toward it. Two people are, are shot. One white man is killed. Ossie and Sweet and his family, the people who were in the house, his family and friends, were arrested for murder. Now, according to Michigan law, this was self-defense. But according to the media, to the police, to the prosecutor, who would one day be a judge at Nuremberg, and to the liberal anti-Klan mayor, this was murder. A black person who was a physician had no right to self-defense. That's white rage. And Tulsa. Oh, my gosh, Tulsa, where you had Black Wall Street. You had African-Americans who were working hard, again, doing everything that they're supposed to do. And the result was that they were slaughtered to the point where you had an airplane 
flying over dropping nitroglycerin bombs onto the black neighborhood. And, you know, and if you see the signs, you'll see uh, one of the, the pictures from that moment saying, driving the Negroes out of Tulsa. We call that ethnic cleansing now. So it was an assault on black progress. When we get to the 1930s, we are in the Great Depression. Here you have African Americans somewhere between a 50 to 80 percent, depending on the region, unemployment rate. So we talk about a 25 percent unemployment rate across the nation. For African Americans, it was staggering. When New Deal legislation came through, because of the power of the Southern Democrats, and remember, the Southern Democrats have that power because of massive disfranchisement, because of literacy tests, understanding clauses, good character clauses, and the poll tax. It meant that these folks controlled Congress. They controlled the appropriations. And so whatever FDR was trying to push through, they're like, yeah, but it's got to be whites only. And so you have really disparate funding, you have really imbalanced so that whites received much more in relief payments than African Americans under the guise that black people didn't really need that much to live on anyway. You see that the way that Social Security is devised is that the occupations where African Americans worked the most were excluded from the Social Security system. You have the rise of the Federal Housing Administration that embeds in federal law redlining so that the way that the FHA worked is that if you were black in a black neighborhood, you could not gain access to a Federal Housing Administration loan, which took the loan out over 30 years and was at a much lower interest rate. If you were black and moving into a white neighborhood, you did not have access to an FHA loan. Now, the FHA, to put this into perspective, helped create the wealth of the white middle class in the United States. But it is a major federal program from which African Americans were all but excluded. Because if you're black and you can't get a loan when you're buying in a black neighborhood, and if you're black and you can't get a loan when you're buying in a white neighborhood, that pretty much leaves you out of moving into most places and getting a loan. That's still going on today, Carol Anderson, including in allegedly liberal areas like Marin County mm-hmm. and with major banks, including Wells Fargo. I mean, we bring that story certainly up to the present. But before we get there, let's continue and let's go through the post-war post-World War II era. There's a lot of changes taking place here. There's a lot of changes. One of the changes I talk about in a talk I give called We Fight, and it is the insurgency coursing through the black community that's just like, you know, we fought Nazis. We're not coming back here to deal with Nazis. So a change has got to come to America. And so part of what I track And again, let me be clear, I don't talk about it in this book as much, but after the Second World War, there is a wave of lynchings that happened, particularly against black veterans, because they were not in their place. They were not subservient. They believed that because they had fought for the United States of America, that they had a right to be treated as American citizens. And the response 
of the white communities? No, you do not. You have the right to be blowtorched and dismembered. You have the right to be gunned down next to your pregnant wife. You have the right to have your eyes gouged out. Just a series of horrific events happening immediately following the Second World War. And what is equally important, and I think has to be stressed, is that then you have a judicial system, a legal system, that says there's been no crime committed here. We can't find the perpetrator. And so you have this massive wound that allows this massive violence and that white rage allows and gives sanction. Or we find the perpetrators like in Emmett Till and they go free. Yes, because you have a system that in fact sanctions this violence, that gives credibility, credence to this violence, that legitimizes the violence. And that's why with white rage, I focus a lot on that structure, those policies, because if all we do is focus in on the Klan, then that means that all of this other activity, all of these other efforts that are requiring an enormous amount of energy, we just put our blinders on and we don't see, which was actually one of the big tricks after the civil rights movement. Let me take us to Brown. Before we go to Brown, Carol Anderson, we're going to have to take one more brief break. And this is Mickey Huff with Peter Phillips. You're listening to the Project Censored show. We're having a fascinating conversation with Carol Anderson. Her latest book, White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of the Racial Divide. We'll continue that conversation after this musical break. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. I'm Mickey Huff with Peter Phillips. We're speaking with historian Carol Anderson for the hour today. Her latest book, White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide. We last left off before the break. We were getting into the civil rights period of Brown v. Board in 1954. And Carol Anderson, you wanted to continue from there. Yes. And so here we have Brown. And Brown, the NAACP's initial framing of that was, okay, so Plessy v. Ferguson, separate but equal. The states immediately ran to separate. They got that, my brother would say, with a quickness. That needed no explanation. They were separating all over the place. But it was the equal part. So they didn't even implement Plessy. They couldn't get to equal. And so you had wildly disparate funding and disparate accommodations and disparate quality of schools. In Mississippi, for instance, in Amity County, African-Americans 
were funded at about $3 per capita and white students at about $30 per capita. That's disparate funding. So as the NAACP first goes after disparate funding and the states really can't equalize, there's not enough money to do that. The federal government had estimated during World War II they would take about, and this is in 2014 dollars, about $1.2 trillion to equalize the school systems in the United States. So when they can't get to that, then comes Brown. With that Brown decision, the South had already been gearing up its arsenal. And part of that arsenal was to shut down the public school systems altogether and then take public dollars. Now, they would talk about it in terms of their dollars, but African Americans paid taxes too. Take these public dollars and then provide tuition funding for all white segregated public academies so that white students could continue their education while the public school system was shut down. This was most obvious and egregious in Prince Edward County, Virginia, where that school system was shut down for five years. White students continued to go through and get educated. Black students were not. And what we know with child development, that five years is a long time to be without schooling. You miss so much. And the way that the South just entrenched itself in terms of saying, look, as long as we can legislate, we can segregate. The Georgia Attorney General said, look, we know that a lot of the laws that we're passing are unconstitutional and that they're going to be overturned. But we're going to keep passing them because every time we do, it is going to take more and more time before we have to implement that U.S. Supreme Court decision. That is white rage. So here you have black children who want to get educated, who want to go to school, and the response is, we will shut down your schools. We will pass one unconstitutional law after the next to ensure that you do not get educated. Carol Anderson, going from the civil rights movement forward, and certainly the Civil Rights Act of 64, the Voting Rights Act of 65, the Economic Opportunity Act of 64, set federally some changes that were attempted to be implemented in many places that were strongly resisted by very angry white people. But the code words for affirmative action came out of that. And you very correctly talk about affirmative action as, as primarily just recruitment, a recruitment for jobs or recruitment for schools, and essentially that's what it was. But for most white people, it meant preference, which was illegal, still is, always has been. But affirmative action meant preference for people of color, and that just brought out more white rage than ever. Still so, does. Absolutely. Yeah. And Mickey and I deal with this in the classroom all the time. And it's the mythology around that, you know, that, like there was quota systems that had to be managed. You know, the only time that ever was a quota system was there was prior proven discrimination in a court order for a certain percentage, like one out of three hires. San Francisco Fire Department, certainly Lucky Stores here in California a number of cases like that. But those were court-ordered things. It was illegal completely to have quota systems per se. But that became part of the mythology 
And certainly the war on poverty manifested itself in a variety of ways with community action agencies at a local level, and in many cases empowering local black folks to to engage in and be part of that process, challenging what had been an all-white welfare system in the country. Yes. And, you know, the Welfare and the Social Security Act was for white women. And all of a sudden, there's a surge of black families going in under AFDC so that that had to be completely changed under the Clinton administration and eliminated, literally. So all of that has this history of countermanding any of the opportunities that were emerging at that time. Absolutely. And you see this, for instance, in let's take the vote. Right now, there's so much effort being put in to try to reinstitute the Voting Rights Act. So we get the Voting Rights Act in 65. The only way that act came through was to say that it had to be re-upped in five years, reapproved in five years by Congress. So in 1970, so we've got the Voting Rights Act in 65. By 1970, the act is coming up again, and the Nixon administration comes out against it and comes out against it in that very subtle, cool way. You can't say, no, I don't want these black people to vote. Because, again, this is 1970. So what they say is that the act discriminates against the South and that the act really isn't needed. It targets the South. That is just wrong. Now, the reason it was targeting the South is because the South had done so much in terms of denying black people access to the ballot box that it needed to be targeted. But the Voting Rights Act had enough flexibility as it went on that you had bail-ins and bail-outs so that all you had to do as a municipality or as a state or as a county was just stop discriminating. Quit trying to stop your people from voting. And you don't have to have federal oversight anymore. We understand this when we're so-called talking about criminals and parolees, right? But somehow, when we have a state who, 50 years after the Voting Rights Act, is still trying to find ways to keep its citizens from having access to the ballot box, from having access into the say into their own government, somehow that state is the victim. But it leads all the way up through the assault on ACORN. Yes. And the completely bogus nature of James O'Keefe and the attack on ACORN, and even though they were vindicated, their funding was gutted. ACORN became the beard, as it were, the excuse to talk about rampant voter fraud. Let's be really clear here. This is some made-up stuff. It was when Greg Abbott down in Texas, who was then the attorney general, was trying to explain the rampant voter fraud in Texas before a judge. Because right after Shelby County v. Holder, that horrific decision by the Supreme Court that gutted the Voting Rights Act by taking out Section 4, by seeing Section 4 was unconstitutional, Greg Abbott says, hey, we've got rampant voter fraud. The judge says, show me. And he can point to two cases where somebody tried to use somebody else's identification to vote. That's some outbreak. I'm telling you, that is rampant, right? <laughs> Two. <laughs> so, and, and Texas had about 10 million votes. So out of 10 million votes, he has two cases. Now, the way that Texas has 
set up its government-issued photo ID required to vote, though, is that in many counties, there is no DMV. There's no place to get that government-issued photo ID. Some people have to drive for about 250 miles to get a government-issued photo ID. Many of those folks are black, brown, and poor, which means then if you've got to drive 250 miles to get a voter ID, you're talking about having access to a range of resources that aren't readily available to you. And people glom on to these myths, these fictions, just like Reagan and the welfare queen myth, which, again, there are so many examples of this. It's, you get a couple other books out of this. By the way, we're speaking with Carol Anderson, and her book is White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide. And we're running out of time, unfortunately. We're going to have to have you back on, but we have to get into a little bit of the so-called war on drugs here. And, you know, a recent piece in Harper's by Dan Baum, you know where I'm going with this, right? I sure do. John Ehrlichman, right, from the Nixon White House, basically is quoted as saying, the Nixon campaign in 68 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black. Okay, right? This is where he's going. But Mm -hmm. by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities, arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. And I know some are questioning... Ehrlichman in that regard as to whether or not he actually said this, but boy, does that certainly fit the pattern, Carol Anderson. It so fits the pattern. I did a piece in Salon where I'm talking about Donald Trump and why the GOP is angry with Trump is because he has pulled back the veil of white rage in the GOP, that use of policies as a means to undermine and undercut black advancement. He sure has. And that here... And I use that Ehrlichman quote because what that war on drugs did was to criminalize blackness in ways that then undermined and undercut the advances of the Civil Rights Act as well as the Voting Rights Act. Today, because of the ways that the drug laws have been used from the disparate sentencing Mandatory minimums, the yes. privatization of the prison industry, Gary All Webb's blockbuster story on crack cocaine, CIA in L.A. I mean, yes, on and on. And on and on is that right now where we stand, according to the sentencing project, is we have about 2.2 million, I believe, African-Americans who have been disfranchised because of felony convictions. The bulk of those are for nonviolent drug offending. Well, that's what Michelle Alexander calls the new Jim Crow. Absolutely. And I think what's also important to see in this is that the, a study coming out of Duke shows that African Americans are one of the least likely racial and ethnic groups to use drugs. And another study out of the University of Washington, one of the least likely to sell drugs. So you've got the least likely being the most incarcerated. Well, Carol Anderson, there are so many things in the book that we didn't get to and so many other historical parts of this significant narrative that you have in White Rage. 
the unspoken truth of a racial divide certainly didn't get to the 85 move bombing in Philadelphia and, again, so many other things that have happened, including the rise of, of Black Lives Matter. But, Carol Anderson, we'd love to have you back on the program, and thank you so much for joining us on the Project Censored show. Again, Carol Anderson, author most recently of White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide. Carol Anderson, thanks for joining us on the Project Censored show. And thank you so much. Supporting human conditions, not free market propaganda and corrupt politicians. Cause they own by special interest groups that fund their campaign. That's why you hear the same old things they claim, but change never came. It's a dirty game maintained by rain for capital gain. That does it for our program today. I'm Mickey Huff with Peter Phillips. This is the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. We give special thanks to our producer, Anthony Fest. The Project Censored Show airs around the U.S. from Maui to New York. Archives can be found online at projectcensored.org. Please follow and like us on Facebook. We'll see you next time. Habitualized alibis, skies and other guys of democracy, politics, and the apocalypse. Got the skies like an ominous. So the ocean burned bright with waves full of poison. Genocide wars fall for little poison. The weapons manufactured pay for our attacks while the bridges and the levees and the mines collapsing. All the prisons build the capacity citizens. And the times for the master thief. Combine and conquer, steal a masterpiece. Open your eyes and realize what's happening. Time's running out to reach all potential fame at the table, then you're probably on the menu. We got that We want